name is Phil, and I don't know if we've ever had a chance to meet, um, and I would ask you to say your name now, but that'd be weird. So anyways, um, I'm one of the pastors here, and I have the privilege of preaching the first two weeks. Larry's going to preach the next two weeks, and then he and I will alternate the last two weeks. And uh, it's just a great, great time in our church to be studying the Reformation. And we're hearing a lot of feedback that people are learning things they either hadn't thought of before, hadn't learned before, or they forgot. And uh, I just like to think people would generally forget rather than just didn't know. So that's where we're at. Anyways, um, let's pray together and let's just ask God to, to help us. Lord, you tell us that your word is perfect, reviving the soul, that your word is true, bringing light to the eyes, refreshment to the soul, that you lead us in the path everlasting through your word. It's a lamp unto our feet. And so I pray, God, that as we come this week to, to learn about sola scriptura, that you through the Holy Spirit would help us to see that these things are true. Because by your word is your servant warned, and by your word is their great reward. So God, would you help us to bask in the great rewards that Christ has purchased for us through his death and resurrection? And God, would you grant us your spirit? As we talked about last week, Lord, we understand that where your spirit is, you are there. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And that freedom enables us to think well, to feel what we ought to feel. So God, pour out your spirit on all of us right now, we pray. Granting us clarity of thought, clarity of feeling, depth of insight. And we ask these things for God's glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this week's definition of sola scriptura, it means the Bible alone, the Bible alone is the word of God and the only infallible rule in all matters of faith and life. So sola scriptura is the, it, it, sola scriptura is, is the teaching, just kind of encapsulates the idea that scripture is God's word. And it is the only infallible, and the word infallible means cannot err, will never go wrong. It's the only infallible rule in matters of faith in life. In other words, everything that the Bible asks you to believe is true. Everything that the Bible asks of you to live in obedience under is true. And it's trustworthy, true, sure, steadfast. Because it's backed behind God himself, who is the one divine author, even though there's a multiple collection of human authors. And what Sola Scriptura emphasizes is the supreme authority of Scripture. There are a lot of authorities in culture. There's a lot of authorities in your life. But when it comes to the supreme authority... And what I mean by supreme authority is when you have a multitude of other authorities competing with one another and contradicting one another, I ask the question, in the midst of that where you feel like you should do this and you think you should do that but you're not sure what to do, what is it that stands as the arbiter, the decider between those conflicting authorities? What is the ultimate authority that you go, okay, at the end of the day, that's true. What is it? You see, in our culture, we have a lot of competing authorities. We have internal authorities like reason and emotion and experience as our ultimate authority. And you've heard this before. When it comes to your reason, you've heard this, the thing said, uh, it just makes sense to me. 
And that's it. That, that's the reason. Well, well, why though? Or when it comes to emotion as an internal authority, you hear people say, well, it just feels right. Okay. And if it feels right, do it. Why? And how do you know? Or another one is, is the experience. And this is becoming more popular today. This is just my experience. It's my truth. Okay. Why? Why should you obey that and not this? What's the rationale behind that? And whatever your answer is, whatever your answer to that question, why you obey this and not that, that is your supreme authority. I obey this because it makes sense to me. Supreme authority, thinking. I, I do this because it just feels right. Supreme authority, emotion. I do this because that's just my truth. Okay, supreme authority, your experiences. You are the greatest authenticator of truth in the known world. For me, I don't, that doesn't feel good. I don't know about you, but I'm limited in my thinking, feeling, and experiences. And you know, in today's culture, it's almost like forbidden for you to suggest that somebody's internal authority may be wrong. Like, hey, this is true for me. I'm going to do this thing because it just makes sense to me. Yeah, but your sense doesn't make sense. Oh, what? Or it just feels right. Well, I think your feelings are wrong. How could you? Or this is just my truth. Well, your truth is wrong. What? I love uh, what Oprah Winfrey said. She, <laughs> she said this in the interview. She said, the one thing, the one thing, the one thing that everyone should do. So Oprah's telling you how to live your life. The one thing that everyone should do is to try not to tell other people how to live. You can laugh at that because that's ridiculous. Here's why. Is she not telling everyone how they ought to live? Everyone should live this way. Don't tell people how to live. What? The most incredible thing is the audience stood to their feet and clapped because that is just such great wisdom. And I'm thinking, whoa. But there's also other authorities. We have to be very careful as Christians because we sometimes think that you know, like we're, we're like this, this people group that is immune, like we're wrapped in some kind of like emotional, spiritual bubble wrap where nothing can like penetrate us and we're totally safe. And we're not, we're not, we don't succumb to those kinds of things, those authorities that exist out there which contradict scripture. But as Christians, we, we do. We have lots of things that, that we hold to that we probably shouldn't. The scripture is self-authenticating. What we mean by that is this. This is how Matthew Barrett put it. He's quoting Desmond Alexander in a book called From Eden to the New Jerusalem. He says, when it comes to matters of authority, we should begin by listening to what scripture has to say about itself. For it claims for itself an authority not derived from human beings, but from God. And as divine revelation, it presents us with a meta story that claims to communicate absolute truth that cannot be discovered by any other means. And so the question is, when you come to the matter of truth and authority, where do you start? With self and the internal authorities or other people and the external authorities like science and philosophy, things like psychology or pragmatism? You know what pragmatism is. If it works, do it. The ends justify the means. 
You want to have a big church? You want a lot of people to come? Give away iPhones. Everyone will come. The ends justify the means. Yeah, but should we do that? And how do you get your answer to that question? Should we? Or, or, or about, um, you know, when it comes to matters of authority externally, also like the, the majority. So-and-so's doing it. Well, they're all doing it. How many of us as parents have heard our kids say that? Well, they get the, I don't care what they get. Well, their parents let that, well, their parents are bad parents. It's <laughs> a good one. You can use that. But we have to be very careful as Christians that we, that we come to realize that we're also the kinds of people that we need to answer these questions for ourselves. When it comes to the matter of authority, how we should live our life and what we should believe, from, from what do we derive the supreme authority that every other thing surrenders to? What is that? Do you start with self? Do you start with out, people out there? Sola Scriptura is the teaching that we should start with the Bible and just ask the Bible, what does the Bible say? And the Bible will give you the answer. And what we come to find out in the Bible is this, that Scripture is self-authenticating. This is what Matthew Barrett wrote. He said, in other words, we seek to ground authority in the greatest authority that we can find, namely Scripture itself. Because in doing so, we are actually grounding Scripture's authority in God because he is its divine author and it is his word. And so that's sola scriptura. We ground all of our claims for faith and all of our claims for how to live our lives in Scripture because Scripture is God's word. And there is no authority greater than God. And if I argue for the authority of Scripture based on archaeology, guess what is the authority now? Archaeology is because it validates this book. If I argue that Scripture, in order to be authoritative, I argue logically, then guess what? Logic is the supreme authority that proves the Bible. Do you guys understand that? So whatever stands above Scripture to authenticate it, that becomes the supreme authority. So for us, when it comes to sola scriptura, the only legitimate thing that we can do to ask whether or not Scripture is the supreme authority is to ask Scripture, are you supreme authority? And that's what today's sermon is all about. And we as Christians need to be very careful because we have many rivals to the supreme authority of Scripture. We have traditions. Sometimes we say, oh, a tradition is so bad. Those other people have traditions. We do too. What are you talking about? One of my favorite things is to, when I talk to uh, young married people who want to know how to, you know, just really bolster their marriage. And uh, they want good marriage advice. And one of the things I encourage them, hey, just go out and hang out with your wife, man. Play board games and, and like, go out on dates and stuff. And they'll take that. And that's good advice. Do that. But then what's really interesting is sometimes that same advice, which is, has become a tradition. You, you've heard it. You've, you've seen it written in books for 30, 40 years now. You should do that. It's a good thing. Now all of a sudden there's people going out on dates on Saturday night, dancing, coming home tired. When they wake up Sunday morning, they're too tired to go to church. So here's the thing, explicitly in scripture it says go to church, gather with the saints. But then there's this tradition of date your mate. So when we date our mate and then we can't go to church because we're too tired, guess what? We've replaced scripture with tradition. So we're, we're guilty of this. Not only that, but in Christian circles there's this uh, surrender to what's called new visions and dreams. People want a fresh revelation from God. They want... 
the spirit of God to, to give them new insight and new revelations. And they want it through visions and dreams. And I'll challenge people and I go, oh, how do you know your vision is actually from God? How do you know that your dream is actually from God? How do you know that? How do you, how do you test it? And inevitably, it comes down to this verse, Acts 2, verse 16 and 17. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So the people are speaking in tongues and Peter gives an explanation for why this is happening. He says in verse 17, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. And generally people will tell me, see, the Holy Spirit gives dreams, the Holy Spirit gives vision, the Holy Spirit gives prophecy. And I would say, amen. Yes, he does. But you are grounding that in something greater than the vision. You are grounding your belief in scripture. Therefore, scripture is the supreme authority over visions and dreams because visions and dreams originate with the text of scripture. So when you have a vision and you have a dream and you have a fresh revelation from God and you wanna know whether or not it's from God or something else, whether or not you ate a spicy sausage and it's just working its way back up <laughs> and you wanna know, the answer is, Test it against scripture. That's the answer. That's what Sola Scriptura says. The supreme authority to all things, even fresh revelations of dreams and visions, must be submitted to scripture. Because even the concept of dreams and visions coming from the Holy Spirit comes from scripture. And the last thing is religious experience and pragmatism. We are so guilty of this in the church. The ends justify the means. If it works, do it. If I can get a big crowd by handing out iPhones, I will. Yeah, but should we? I love what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 16, verse 17 to 19. He says this. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause division and create obstacles. Like I said last week, a lot of time when we read something like that, we think, okay, what causes division is doctrine. But look at what Paul says. It's not doctrine that divides. It's the absence of it. Look at it. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Look, the doctrine is clear. It's here. And if you get some weirdness, not that, it's other stuff, that's where the controversy comes from. It's not doctrine divides. It's the lack of doctrine that divides. Verse 18 for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. See what Paul's saying here. You guys need to understand that the telltale sign of whether or not somebody is trying to deceive you is in whether or not their words are filled with flattery and smooth talk. Now, what in the world is that? Easy. Smooth talk and flattery is the kind of language which is completely inoffensive. Think about that. To be completely inoffensive, you don't get any offense at all. Smooth talk goes down nice. Flattery, you're awesome. But you know what? The gospel is incredibly offensive. I don't know about you, but have you thought about that recently? Okay, you're made in the image of God. Great. 
But the moment that you are conceived, you are, you have, you inherit a sin nature. And that nature, according to Ephesians 2, 3, makes you an object or a child of God's wrath. And God's wrath will be poured out on you unless you repent of your sins and trust Jesus to take God's wrath upon himself in your place. And unless you do that, according to John 3, 36, from Jesus' own lips, the wrath of God will remain on you and you will be destroyed in hell. Okay, anyone offended by that? Nobody goes, oh, that's smooth talk right there. <laughs> that's incredibly offensive. But here's the thing is the gospel doesn't stop right there. Because that's just bad news. The gospel is good news. So therefore we keep reading. But God sent his one and only son into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So that through his perfectly obedient life, he can do everything that you and I cannot do. And then not only that, but he took upon himself the punishment for disobedience and sin by being crucified on a cross. And through his blood that was shed, he is offering forgiveness of sins so that you and I don't have to experience the wrath of God because the wrath of God has been poured out and completely satisfied upon the person of Jesus Christ on the Roman cross. Not only that, but he was dead and buried. More than that, he rose from the dead. And when he rose from the dead, guess what? The tomb is empty, which signifies to us sin has been paid for. Death has been overcome. And anyone who will trust Jesus' perfect life, his atoning sacrifice as a substitute for you, and you trust that his resurrection it means new life for anyone who believes, if you trust that, then you no longer have to fear the wrath of God. You go from a child of God's wrath to a child of the king. And you are adopted into the family of God. So there is a good side of the gospel, but if you only land on one side or the other where you're like, you're wretched, you're going to hell. And then on the other side is like, you're awesome. You're a child of God. You can do all things. It's just, you're awesome. The message is not being clearly and fully spoken. The gospel is incredibly offensive and it's incredibly hopeful. You got to have both. And Paul says, you got to be careful. Pragmatism will emphasize whatever works. I remember being at a camp with a bunch of youth pastors and we had a youth pastor who boldly told everyone that his goal in prayer is to have the biggest youth group in his area. So I naturally, I can't let stuff like that go. So I just naturally asked him why? And he said, because the larger the number, every number represents a soul. So the larger the number, the larger the, the amount of souls. And I care about, deeply I care about souls. And everyone's like, yeah, man, brother, amen. And I'm going, cool. So what are your messages like? Like, do you talk about the wrath of God and how people are going to hell unless they repent? And he smirked and he goes, no, or else they wouldn't show up. So wait a minute. So if you don't repent of your sins and trust Jesus, your soul will be destroyed in hell. But yet you care about souls so deeply that you want to have as many souls there as possible. But yet, in your speaking to these many souls, you don't actually talk to them about how their soul can be saved. I don't know if you actually care about their souls. I think the only soul you care about is your own. Because your soul, your own soul, you can boast of how great of a youth pastor you are. Look at all the kids I have. Look how big my ministry is. 
Look, if I wanted a big church, we would just spend 60% of our church budget on giving people new iPhones. We get 12,000 people in this church next week. But should we? And Sola Scriptura says, no, no. The church is the gathering of the saints. We're not here because of gimmicks. We're here because of God. So Sola Scriptura means that the Bible alone is the word of God. It's the supreme authority, the only infallible rule in all matters of faith and practice. And you know what? It broke my heart when I heard that youth pastor talk like that. And that was the same thing that motivated Martin Luther at his time. He was watching people in his culture who were being used by the powerful. These people were just trying to make a name for themselves and to make a name for their own ministry. They were trying to make themselves great at the expense of other people. And when Martin Luther was seeing this go on, he just could not take it anymore. In fact, a man named John Tetzel, who you'll read about in the workbook, he used to sell indulgences to people who were so guilt-ridden. He would tell them that if they truly loved their loved ones, their relatives, that they could be assured that they're not in hell. Naturally, they would ask, how can we be sure of this? And he says, simply buy this indulgence and you'll know. But what do you do if you are so poor that you barely have enough money to buy food for your own family? But he threatens you that if you don't buy this indulgence, even if it costs you uh, food for your family, what kind of person are you? Do you really love your, your relatives? And he so guilt-stricken people and so uh, pressured people that he actually alienated the poor and told them that they could not enter the kingdom of God because they didn't have the resources, the money to purchase these indulgences and therefore get to heaven. That's a form of prosperity gospel. If you just have the money and you give enough to the church, we can guarantee that you're getting in. That is deceptive, abusive, and it's manipulative. And it's dead wrong and satanic. The prosperity gospel and all of their teachers who are advocating your best life now. It's garbage. Martin Luther knew that. But you know what? The, the, the misuse of authority wasn't something that happened in a vacuum. It didn't just all of a sudden spring up. It was something that trickled down over history. In fact, it started with, the, with one of the popes in 1075 A.D. So what we're going to do now is we're going to go through a little bit of church history just for a few minutes. And then we're going to jump into scripture. But Pope Gregory VII wrote a dictatus papae, which is 27 statements on the office of the pope. This is what he wrote in 1075. The Roman church has never erred nor ever will err. By the witness of scripture, it shall never err into all eternity. Guess who's the head of the Roman church? The Pope. So the Pope is saying, I will never make a mistake. I have never made a mistake and I never will for all eternity. That's the power of the Pope. And that lasted for about 200 years or so. And then all of a sudden, some of the Popes who came after him thought, you know what, that sounds really good. Like to just... Tell people how amazing you are and how you never, you know, like make a wrong statement. So in 1302, Pope Boniface VIII wrote a papal bull, which is a public decree of official doctrine. It was called Unum Sanctum. Here's what he wrote. We declare, state, and define, and pronounce that it is altogether necessary to salvation for every human creature to be subject to the Roman pontiff, the Pope. Or in other words... If you want to be sure you're going to heaven, the only way to be sure is make sure that you listen to me and do what I tell you to do. That's the only way. 
Whoa. Okay. But then here's what happened. You see, all the authority of the church resides in the Pope at this time. And then what happens is this. There's, there's a problem that arises. In 1305, the Pope dies and the cardinals are electing a new Pope. And so they decided to elect Arch, Archbishop of Bordeaux. And um, he, there were some problems with him. Namely, he was a Frenchman. He didn't want to relocate to Rome. So he decided he's going to stay in his native country, France. So he moved the center of the church from Rome to Avignon, France. And he said, okay, ex-cathedra is the idea that when the Pope sits on his ex-cathedra, the throne that he gets the words of God. Okay, well now we're going to move that and we're going to move it over to Avignon, France. Now I receive the words of God here. And so the Italian people were pretty upset about that. Because now tourism is kind of taking a hit. And so when that Pope died... Now, all of a sudden, in 1378, there was a need for a new pope. And some of the Italian uh, people were pretty upset that they formed a mob. And they stormed, they stormed the, the area of St. Peter's Basilica, and they demanded that there be an Italian pope. Well, guess what? The cardinal's inside. They're hearing the, pope, the uh, mob outside. They're going, hey, come on. All right, let's just get a, an Italian pope. And so they elected an Italian pope. They regretted their decision after a couple years because they realized this guy's an aggressive moron. And that's literally what the historians are saying. This guy just had no clue what he was doing. They regretted their decision. And what Michael Reeves says is this historian. He says, many started voicing the opinion that the election could not have been valid because it was conducted under duress. So what did they do? They elected a new pope. So Gregory the, the 12th was the Italian pope. But now Benedict the 13th was now a new pope. And uh, the first appointee was like, no, I'm not going nowhere. The new appointee, was, yes, you are. So he excommunicated him. Well, in response, the first pope looks at the second one and goes, no, 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 you're excommunicated. They excommunicated each other. <laughs> so now if this isn't a problem enough, remember that the, the thing is supreme authority resides in the pope. Supreme authority resides in Rome or maybe Avignon. I mean, who knows? So they decided, let's have another council, we'll elect a new pope. So they wanted to depose the first two and come up with the third one. So they elected John the 23rd. And guess what? The first two popes said, nah, we're not leaving. The third pope said, you better leave. Well, there was three. So the question is, who has the authority? The first, the second, or the third? And where does the authority reside, Rome or Avignon? Like, what do we believe and who do we trust? Everyone said, you have to trust the pope. Well, which one? The one who sits on the, on the ex-cathedra. But which one? Do you see what's happening here? So they convened another council called the Council of Constance in 1414 to 1418. And there they deposed all three other popes and elected a new one named Martin V. Along the way, they were able to declare Wycliffe and John Huss heretics. They burned John Huss at the stake. They dug up Wycliffe's bones, burned those, and then threw them into the River Swift just for good measure. They wanted to make sure that anyone who ever claimed, as John Huss and also as John Wycliffe said, that the Bible is more authoritative than the Pope, they wanted to make sure nobody was teaching that anymore. So they burned these guys alive as heretics to make sure that everyone understood the Popes are more powerful. However, the Council of Cardinals started to realize, wait a minute, how is the Pope more authoritative? We decide who the Pope is. And if we decide the Pope, we're more important than them. You see their thinking. So they made a decree called uh, St. Crescenta, and they declared that councils are the greatest authority in all of Christendom. Well, Martin V said no, and he declared that uh, void. 
And then the next pope in 1460, Pope Pius II, he issued a bull, which is a public statement of teaching, and he said, anyone who suggests that there is an authority greater than the pope will be excommunicated and they will be killed. Okay, so now the authority is back on the pope. Next steps in Martin Luther. This is the, 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 the time in which Martin Luther lived, where people were questioning, who do I believe? Who do I trust? How do I know what's true? And the answer used to be the Pope, but now there's like four of them. And it used to be Rome, but how do we know? So Martin Luther stepped in. And what he said at the Diet of Augsburg in 1518, when he was questioned by Cardinal Cahayton, he says, the truth of Scripture comes first, and after that is accepted. Then one may determine whether the words of men can be accepted as true. So in, in Luther's mind, Scripture's first, and then you have to weigh everything by the Scriptures. Well, that didn't sit very well in the Roman church. No, 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 Martin Luther, it's not the scriptures that have supreme authority, I do. So they called Martin Luther to a place called Worms in Germany. It's called the Diet of Worms, April 17th, 1521. They asked him to come and give an account of what he was teaching. And there Charles V was challenging Martin Luther to his teaching. They put him in this room where there's tons of people and it's hot in there and you can hardly breathe and everyone's sweating a little bit. And all the books are laid out on the table and they ask Martin Luther, are these your writings? Intimidated by the situation, Martin Luther said in a barely audible voice, they are. Then they asked the second question, do you recant of what you're teaching in these? Realizing the gravity of the situation, he calls the timeout and says, I need to think about this. And so they dismiss him. He comes back the next day. This time he's more boisterous. He's more bold. He sits at the table and they ask him again, will you recant of what you've taught in these books? And here's what Martin Luther said. Unless I'm convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they often err and contradict themselves. I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. And then what Martin Luther did was he pounded the table in front of him with both fists and he stood up, raised both hands over his head like a victorious jouster and then declared, I've made it through, I've made it through and then left the building. <laughs> That's awesome. I would have loved to have been there like this guy. I'm going to shake his hand. Like I need a secret handshake with him. This is amazing. And what was even more amazing is when the Christians heard what he was willing to do and how he was willing to stand up to the abuses of power and authority, the Christians became more emboldened than ever. And what the Reformation taught was that Scripture itself is the supreme authority. And the first thing we must do is not look inwardly for the supreme authority, nor look outwardly in the institution surrounding us. What we should do for supreme authority is come to the scriptures and ask ourselves of the scriptures, what do you say? Now, what do we find when we ask that question? I have 12 minutes. <laughs> I'm gonna read a lot of scripture. Remember last week when I said it's intellect and emotion? It's intellect time, here we go. 2 Timothy 3, 14 to 17, when we ask the question, what does scripture say about itself? Here's the answer we get. 
that scripture is grounded in God's authority because scripture says of itself that God is its source. But as for you, Paul writes to Timothy, to continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Now, a good Jewish person would never say sacred writings or apply that phrase to anything other than the Old Testament scriptures. So Paul is referring to the Old Testament scriptures. You've been acquainted with these sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And here's the kicker. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In the workbook on page 21, it reads like this. Every word of scripture is sourced in and approved by God. It wouldn't be true to say that God breathed on scripture that already existed and therefore made scripture his word. Rather, God breathed out the scriptures so that the very words themselves are the very words of God. That's an important distinction. Here's what Peter wrote in 2 Peter verse, chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. Peter says, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when, we, when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. So that's the Mount of Transfiguration. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. That's an important distinction that we have to understand. There are prophetic words which may be true, but there is a prophetic word which is more fully confirmed than just the prophetic words. What is it? Jump down to verse 20. Actually, let's just read it. To which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all. No prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So do you see that? Scripture is a product of the Holy Spirit. It was written by human authors, but there's one divine author, the Holy Spirit. Now let's go to the transfiguration. This is pretty cool. Luke 9, 28 to 31. Now about eight days after these things had taken place, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, why was it significant that Jesus was standing on top of a mountain with Moses and Elijah? Moses in Jewish culture always was the representative of the law. Elijah was always the representative of the prophets. So remember what Paul was doing in Acts chapter 28 at the end of his life when he was on house arrest? He was preaching. And it says this in verse 23, when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. From morning until evening, he was expounding to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus. And where was he grounding his authority? 
from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said and others disbelieved. Verse 25, I love this. And the disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made this one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through the Isaiah the prophet. And then he goes on to explain it. But what Paul does is I'm preaching to you the gospel. It's grounded in the authority of the law and prophets. Who is it that is the representative of the law? Moses. Who is it that is the representative of the prophets? Elijah. Who was it that Jesus was standing on the Mount of Transfiguration when he got this glorious revelation? It was Moses and it was Elijah. And so my thing is this. Whenever somebody says that they have a new revelation from God, they have a new vision from God, it better come underneath the authority of Jesus and Moses and Elijah. Or in other words, it better come under the authority of Scripture because if the Holy Spirit gave that vision to you and the Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture, the Holy Spirit's not going to lie. The Holy Spirit's not going to deceive you. The Holy Spirit is not going to contradict himself. He is God. Does that make sense? So, sola scriptura, remember, means that the Bible alone is the word of God and the only infallible rule in all matters of faith and practice. The Bible is the supreme authority. The Bible says of itself it is the supreme authority. And not only that, but the supreme authority that the Bible says it contains, the source of which is God himself. There is no greater source than God. God says, this is my book. These are my words. So let's, let's, let's read some more scripture. And, and, and this is where it's a, it's a really good argument for why we can trust the Bible. Here we go. Remember 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 15, where Paul says the sacred writings, it implies the Old Testament. So right from the beginning, Paul says, look, the Old Testament is breathed out by God. But not only the Old Testament, the New Testament as well. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 and 16. This is what Peter writes. He says, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. I love that the New Testament speaks of one another. Peter is mentioning Paul. Here's what he says about Paul. Paul talks about salvation, verse 16, as he does in all his letters when he speaks of these, of, in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. I don't know about you, but that's like one of the greatest sources of relief. Sometimes I read and I'm like, what does this mean? It's okay. Sometimes they're hard to understand, but we have to be careful. We don't just say, oh, I don't know, and then live in that. No, we work. 2 Timothy 2.7 says, think over these things, and God too may grant you understanding. Think. Don't be lazy. Think. Because the ignorant and the unstable will twist Paul's writings to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So in Peter's mind, he says, look, Paul is writing some stuff, and you know what? People can twist what Paul says just like they can twist the Old Testament scriptures. So in Peter's mind, Peter, you Peter, homeboy of Jesus, Peter, says that Paul and the Old Testament are on the same plane. When you read Paul, you're reading God's words. That's Peter saying that. That's not me saying that. Peter says that. Why does that matter? It matters because, remember, Peter was learning from Jesus. Jesus taught Peter what to think and how to think. And so let's go one step back further and let's say this. Okay, if I want to know how I should approach Scripture, I think the best and most safest way to approach Scripture is to do so how Jesus did it. 
Everyone agree with that? I mean, he's, he was dead and then rose from the dead. He said, I am God, and he rose from the dead, which means he's, it's true. What he says is true. So what Jesus says is true. You can take it to the bank. So what does Jesus say about how to approach Scripture? Firstly, when Scripture is quoted, God speaks. Here's the thing. Matthew 9, 19, 4 and 5, talking about whether or not it's lawful to divorce and remarry. Jesus says, he answers their question. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said? So just stop there. So Jesus asked Ask the question, can I divorce and remarry? And he gives an answer. Have you not read what the creator, the creator of the universe has said? So what Jesus is about to do is tell you what God, the creator, has spoken. You ready to, to hear it? You want to hear what God has spoken? Verse 5, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Genesis 2.24. In Jesus' mind... If you want to hear God speak, read scripture. The creator of the universe is speaking to you. Where? In Genesis 2.24. Whoa. Whoa. That's Jesus. That's not Phil Ward. That's not Golden Hills. That's Jesus telling you. Scripture is how God speaks. Next one. God speaks through human authors. Matthew 22, verses 31 and 32. When being questioned about the resurrection, here's what Jesus says. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? Okay, you want to hear God speaking to you? Jesus is about to tell you how. Verse 32, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead but of the living. In other words, you want to hear God speak to you? He's going to speak to you through human authors in scripture. That is Moses that Jesus is quoting. But you notice Jesus doesn't say, hey, Moses has a word for you. He says, God has a word for you. God does. And if you notice that too, the whole argument that, that Jesus is, is being asked about is the resurrection. How do we know that the resurrection is true? Jesus's answer to the argument hangs on the tense of the verb to be. You see, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. If God was the God of the dead only, then it, it would have said God was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But it doesn't say was, it says is. God is. So the entire argument for Jesus hangs on the tense of the verb to be. Brothers and sisters, you know what that means? Even the grammar in this book matters. Which, that's why I don't understand when people are like, why do you, why do you labor over grammar? Because I'm trying to be as best I can like Jesus. He labored over grammar. The very word of God hangs on grammar. Whoa. Maybe your kids might pay attention in English now. <laughs> Let's finish with this. I love making sure that we connect the spirit with scripture because in our Christian subculture, people put it out there as if you have to choose. You have to choose between doctrine or, or emotion, the mind or, or the heart. 
And sometimes they'll say you have to choose between the spirit and a Bible teaching church. And I have had people ask me this before. Is your church spirit filled or is it a Bible teaching church? What? But do you see in many Christian cultures, uh, subculture, we say a spirit-filled church is evidenced by one thing, but a Bible teaching church is evidenced by another. And I'm here to suggest, no, 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 no. It's not either or. They're one and the same. And in fact, if you prefer the spirit over scripture, you're dead wrong. And if you prefer the Bible in isolation of the work of the spirit, you're dead wrong. You've got to understand that the scripture is, is a, a product of the spirits working through human beings so that the Holy Spirit himself introduces himself to all of us, not through special revelations only, but because he does do that, but primarily through the scriptures. He says, this is who I am. So when we come to the scriptures, we learn about Jesus. We learn about the spirit. We learn about the father. We learn about God. All right. Maybe you don't believe me. 1 Thessalonians 5, 20 and 21, Paul writes, do not despise prophecies. We understand prophecies are the product of the spirit. So because it says it in scripture, you and I cannot out of hand just say, oh, prophecy. Yeah. No, it says it in the Bible. Don't despise this, but instead test it. Hold fast to what is good. By what do we test prophecy? By what? Scripture. I love this. The spirit. So now what we're going to say is this. Okay, okay. Let's connect the two. The spirit and scripture. Let's connect them. What is the spirit's, one of the spirit's jobs? Here it is. John chapter 3, verses 6 through 8. We have to go quickly. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Jesus says, don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. And so it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. In other words, the spirit of God brings about rebirth, new birth. No argument there. There's a regeneration and a renewal from Titus chapter 3 verse 5 that the Holy Spirit brings about. But then you have these words of Jesus. And so we acknowledge that, yes, Jesus teaches that you are born again and have new birth through the spirit. Amen and amen. But then Jesus says in chapter 6 verse 63 of John, it is the spirit who gives life. Okay, we know that. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Do you see what Jesus is saying? Spirit gives new birth, but how does the spirit get new birth? Through my words, Jesus says. Through my words. So we pick it up in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. And Peter mentions that Christians have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Now, what is that? Verse 25. And this word is the gospel, the good news that was preached to you. Romans 10, 17 says, and hearing comes, or excuse me, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So we put it all together, the spirit Brings new life to people. How? Through the words of Jesus, which are contained in the gospel. If you're not preaching the gospel, people can't be born again. That's Jesus speaking. Does that make sense? So if we only have half the gospel, God hates you, and we have this side, you're awesome. You're not preaching the gospel. Therefore, whatever product is happening is either accidental or it's fake. Because the gospel, both and, 
are how people are born new. Ooh, that's good. All right, last thing. The Spirit gives Jesus' words to the apostles. This is important. The Holy Spirit gives Jesus' words that bring new life to the apostles. Let's read this, John 14, 16, and 17. Here we go. Buckle up. These things I have spoken to you, Jesus says, while I'm still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you, apostles, all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. John 16. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare it to you, the things that are to come. He will glorify me and he will take what is mine, my words, and will declare it to you. John 17, 8. For I have given them, the apostles, the words that you have given me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I come from you. And they have believed that you sent me. Verse 17. So sanctify them, the apostles, in the truth. Your word is truth. Did you guys see how that fits together? Spirit gives new life by the words of Jesus. Jesus' words are granted to the apostles through the Holy Spirit. But how do we get them? I want the words. 1 John chapter 1. This is what the apostle John says. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard with our ears, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And he's talking about Jesus. Then he says in verse 4, I'm writing these things to you so that our collective joy may be complete. Jesus is the words of life. And when we have the words of life, our joy is made complete. And then John writes in 1 John 4, 6, we the apostles are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. And whoever is not from God does not listen to us, the apostles. And by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So let me ask you, brothers and sisters, where is the apostles' teaching contained? Answer. Bible. So here's the thing. If you want to know what the apostles' teaching is that the Holy Spirit has preserved and has taught and has collected the words of Jesus that bring new life, they're in the Bible. And if we reject what's in the Bible, we, we reject not just man, we reject God. Because these words are God-given, God-breathed. And if we're going to say, you know what, nah, I know it says this, but I'm going to do this. Guess what? That is your God, not, not God, who's revealed through this book. But there's one last thing. We as the church, we do not determine what's in this book. We surrender to what is in this book. Look at how Ephesians 2 puts it, and then we'll close with this. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That's a familial language. We're family. But look at this. The church, the family of God is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. In other words, the church is built upon the foundation of the Old and New Testament. Now, can you imagine a building in which the foundation is not underneath the building, but it's on top of? Do you understand what I'm talking about? The foundation is the scriptures. We have to build our lives on top of the scriptures. 
The church is not over the scriptures. The church is built on top of it, dependent on it. And look at what, what it says. Jesus Christ himself is the cornerstone. He's the one from which we right, rightly align ourselves as he's revealed in this book. And in, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The Spirit is growing us, brothers and sisters. The Spirit is uniting us as a church. The Spirit is the one who brought about the apostles and prophets to write scripture as a foundation. The Spirit is the one who's building us as a church on top of the Spirit's work in the scriptures. It's the Spirit and scripture through the preaching of the word that brings about new life. Do you understand the connection? Sola Scriptura says there is no authority greater than scripture. Because scripture is a product of the spirit and the spirit is God. We go beyond scripture, we go beyond God. And that's called idolatry. So we don't have to choose between head and heart. We don't have to choose between intellect and emotions. We don't have to choose between light and heat. And we certainly don't have to choose between scripture and the spirit. They're together. And that's good. We have to pray because I'm out of time. <laughs> Father, help us, God, because... This is, this is so important. This is so vital for us as Christians because we want to be maximally effective in this world. Therefore, we have to go to the scriptures to learn how to do that. We want to glorify you as best we know possibly how. And the only way to know how to do that rightly is through scripture. And God, we want people to come to new life and to be born again. And we, we know that that can only happen through the preaching of the gospel as it's revealed in your word. And so God, help us as a church to not be put into categories of spirit field or Bible teaching. We want to be both. So do that for us in this church. We pray for your glory and for our joy. Amen.